This is episode 220 of the Books, Shows, Tunes, and Mad Acts podcast. This episode is titled, Getting Creative with Curio and Co. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Books, Shows, Tunes, and Mad Acts, the mostly self-explanatory show about stuff we'd like. I'm your host, Jennifer Crittenden. This show is a reboot of Dear Discreet Guide, which ended with 202 episodes at the end of year 2020. So thank you for joining us in the new show. I'm excited to see where this new adventure will take us. I'm really excited to welcome some new guests to the show today. I've got Cesare Asaro and Kirsty Shepard with me, along with my partner in crime, Bill Aho. So welcome to the show, everyone. Hello, oh, thanks, so thanks much for, for having, having us. us. <laughs> I'll introduce Cesare and Kirsty. They are the minds behind the elaborate world-building project Curio and Company, created in 2010 to bring an alternate universe to life from the lost images of a comic strip that never existed to advertisements for an imaginary breakfast cereal, the studio creates and produces entertainment properties from this curio verse with collectibles such as the Eisner nominated book, Finding Frank and His Friend and the Gadabout 1050 Time Machine Users Manual, which has been optioned for a feature film by Columbia Pictures. Chazari's experience from the animation industry on projects like Sesame Street stop motion series, Bert and Ernie's Great Adventures, Disney's Princess and the Frog, and the largest Austrian animated film, Snotty Boy, lists the story <laughs> off the page and brings it to life. At the same time, Kirsty's work as a writer, creating projects for magazines, newspapers, and advertising campaigns in Europe and the U.S., creates imaginary worlds that are fantastic, yet believable. Together as Curio and Company, their work from settings and characters to storylines and props helps audiences discover an extraordinary world that's lurking just under the surface of our own ordinary lives. So yes, really great to have you here. Thanks, Thanks it's great to be here. Can you give us some history in your background? Sure. I guess I can start uh, a little bit uh, with my background. I'm, I'm originally Italian um, and I moved to the U.S. when I was rather young, about 14. And uh, while I was there, I slowly worked my way into college, taking a little bit of a side, side trip, studying, uh, studying a little bit of mechanical engineering, um, which then led me to industrial design and then to fine arts. And by the time I graduated, I was working at a museum where I actually met Kirsty while I was working as an industrial designer. Because I have a passion for mechanical as well as the, the visual arts, it kind of led me into slowly into technology. Uh, so like with multimedia design and then slowly into going further back into the fine arts aspect of things and leading into animation because animation is such a wonderful tool and an umbrella concept of technology and fine arts where they're really meshing together. 
So uh, I started uh, digging into the field a little bit more, uh, and I realized that actually there are chances of getting into the industry. And somehow I managed uh, to whistle my way into <laughs> into a studio, and then a couple of productions, and then uh, I landed opportunity to work at Disney. And it was there where I realized uh, the way Kirsty and I think is is on par with the large studios and that there is a possibility for us to build something that is our own rather than working for somebody else's ideas solely. And that's really what led to Curio and Co. But I let Kirsty fill you in a little bit more well, with her background. My background in storytelling started as a young, I was a little kid when I won an award. My parents like to bring up this, imagine that award I won in, I don't know, kindergarten or first grade. <laughs> Um, that was creative. it. You were you were set for life after that. Well, it, it was it was for creative storytelling, fanciful or creative storytelling, which when you're five does not mean I'm writing novellas. You know, it probably means I'm just lying. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> I might have won an award for lying, but they proudly put it up on the fridge and they were, mm-hmm. I guess they probably expected something else was going to come from that. But I think it was part of that that blending between the what if game and then being able to bring those those creations to life and kind of inhabit them, which I guess is a kind of a form of lying. <laughs> but I think then when we ended up in, um, so Cesare hinted at that, but we're based in Vienna, Austria now, though we met in California. And I think start, a lot of Curionco started from the culture clash maybe that we had here hmm. from where there's all these these stories or this nostalgia I mean this happened to us just recently where some friends were talking about this these 1970s German country music and they were kind of laughing about it and being like oh yeah I remember that and um, it's just these moments that, that we can't be a part of where we're on the outside of that and want us wanting to create something where everybody could be on the inside because none of it was real and none of it existed to begin with. So to create a world where we could bridge some of those gaps and let anybody in, whoever wants to be in. So I think, I'm not sure if Kirionko would have been created if we had stayed in the US, actually. I don't think we would have had the time. We'd be in a... Yeah. We had a little hamster wheel of just chasing. Yeah, that's that's uh, that's that's really one of the wonderful things about being in Europe. It it feels like you have a little bit of a breather time that you can take, even though we we work like mad. uh, But if somehow the environment allows for a little bit less stress induced environment, and I I welcome that considering that we do work about twelve hour days on on the average. And you kind of need that time because Kirsty, she's always coming up. What wouldn't it be fun if? Famous last words. <laughs> fun if. And I say, I always say, yes, it would be fun if. But that means six months of work for me, <laughs> which is fine until you got to get it done. And, you know, there's only so many hours available, unfortunately. <laughs> Yeah, it's interesting to me because so much of this kind of work is coming from the United States or it's driven by audiences in the United States. And so I was thinking, yeah, just physically being separated, it gives you a certain distance and maybe also a certain objectivity. And oh, yeah, so sure. I'm I'm really looking forward to our conversation where you can talk about 
Yeah, what you see happening in American culture and what audience is like when it comes to this kind of nostalgia. I'm sure that the sensibilities are different in Europe, right? So They're absolutely. It's really interesting to me that you're that you're actually in Vienna, right? Such an ancient city and And I think Vienna is also a city that's really centered on nostalgia and very on, much so. looking back. So that also probably has something to do with it, <laughs> that it's a city just steeped in nostalgia for mm-hmm. itself. So maybe that has something to do with it. Sure. Yeah. Can you give us some examples of the kind of work that you're doing? Well, you've, you've hinted a little bit at nostalgia, but uh, I'm not sure actually that was really where we started with it. I think that we were looking for this playful space. Some of that ended up being nostalgia because we were looking at um, could we create some of those warm memories from childhood? So we, we kind of started with this idea of memory um, and some of the things that we created uh, that we have are still creating we think of as kind of souvenirs from this other history if you could you know go visit this um this curio verse what would you collect what would you bring back what would you find in a trunk that someone else had saved so uh we create collectible pop culture collectibles from this imaginary world so we don't have the object itself you know if there's a television show or the piece that would exist in that world we we create the ways to find that the connections that would link you to to that past so it might be the production drawings from a 1960s animated series or it might be um as you mentioned the the advertisements for breakfast cereal we don't have the cereal itself that would sure be stale after all these years (laughs) but we have we have the advertisements that kind of link you to that that longing for the cereal the excitement of all that sugar about to hit your system so the products that we create range from from comics and advertisements to um, a lot of illustrations and drawings um, to games and wearables. We're both very curious people and hence also the name Curio. <laughs> it, it is about curiosity. And this is really a driving force for us because both of us can't sit still uh, with the nature. So the research that it's necessary to be able to create something just in general, uh, even just giving birth to something, you need to be constantly curious and, and evolving as a as a creative person, at least those are the people that I find more interesting that, that are constantly challenging themselves. And the fact that we are interested in doing advertisements, but then next time it could be a book or it could be some augmented reality elements or doing research into, in, into films and look, looking at lighting. So we're constantly are jumping from medium to technology and format. Mm-hmm. because of this. Uh, so that allows us to kind of widen our horizons and also is building a portfolio um, of knowledge as well as product, which sometimes I have to say it is extremely frustrating because you constantly have to reinvent the, the wagon along with the wheels. <laughs> that's also part of the fun. But it is part of the fun. So that's yeah. what I'm saying. It, it's, it's exciting at the same time, frustrating. So because again, it's the hours. I wish I wish it could be <laughs> yeah. a lot more hours where we could invest into 
into research uh, so that we can test things out. We created a user's manual for a time machine, but not the time machine, unfortunately. <laughs> and, and originally, actually, that, that time machine was supposed, we actually wanted to, to build the prop and take the photographs of the actual prop to use in the manual. And originally, we even wanted to have three different languages of the manual in itself. Uh, one was supposed to be in Russian, transliterated into Spanish, so that when you <laughs> actually read the Russian, you would say phonetically Spanish sentences, so that you could only understand if you understood how to read Russian. <laughs> <laughs> and the other one we wanted to do with hi- yeah. was with hieroglyphics. We wanted to actually design an entire set of hieroglyphs in the 1950s styles and just have the whole manual like that. I mean, but so the, the scope of the of the projects that are actually that we were able to give birth to are are only a glimpse of what we're actually hoping to do. But I think that's true of the world in general. You know? I can so relate to that about just wanting more time because yeah. so many things are interesting, right? And to go down all those rabbit holes. Yeah, I can see how, yeah, you must feed off each other and yeah, just create more and more work for each other. (laughs) (laughs) One of the taglines for the website is, we mentioned here, this brand new nostalgia from the childhood you wish you'd had. And so tell me, you know, exploring your website, I was curious, like your, your aesthetic sensibilities, like what kind of themes do you try and tap into to get that feeling across to your audience? Like how much of this is aesthetic and how much of it is psychological? I I don't know how much you think about that, but I was really curious how you get that feeling. It's probably definitely wrapped up together. Cesare hinted at or mentioned a little bit already this playfulness that we're interested in the work. This, I think, is, is one of the main things that we're trying to tap into is that playfulness um, from childhood and being able to discover new things and being able to learn new things. We're continuing to learn things now, but as a kid, like the whole world is just something mm-hmm. for you to learn. And one of the things that I I really love about what we've been able to do at Curio Co. is that it feels like you're coming in on the middle of a conversation almost mm-hmm. as if there's this world that has existed already and you're just now stumbling in on it. But the conversation about the histories and the characters has, has been going on. And if you think about it, that's really is what childhood is like for kids. Anyways, there's like this global conversation that's been going on for centuries, you know, and as a kid, you're kind of stumbling in on it. Wait, wow. Is it? Who, who are these set of characters? What are these locations? And um, so I think that's a lot of what we try to play with is this, this discovery aspect, which is why a lot of the story behind Curion Co., the connections are not explicitly spelled out on paper, that you have to kind of do a little bit of digging and um, playing around. So from the psychological side, I think that's what we're trying to tap into. From the aesthetic side, I mean, this is uh, Chesway really stretching and going in a lot of different directions uh, visually because all of the the work is all his despite it being really different really various genres and really different techniques and I think it's just you having fun with what you like right yeah and I mean I definitely have fun uh, except when computers (laughs) (laughs) yeah except technology yeah (laughs) I mean, I, I think that's um, that's a challenge that everybody, every creative person nowadays has. 
And it teaches a lot about Zen. <laughs> about yes. Mm-hmm. Finding that inner peace. But we're certainly drawn to the types of things that we loved as kids. Like there's um, this whole uh, world of Italian comics that I was not familiar with growing up, but the the Sergio Bonelli comics yeah. certainly inspired a lot of Roger Bellini Roger comics stuff. And, and things that he's done. But there is, it's interesting because we're, we're looking at, so I'm I'm bringing a lot of nostalgia and a lot of POVs from my Italian experience. So growing up also with Heidi, which was one of the early things that Miyazaki did, and Lupin the Third. Um, these are all things that she had never grown up with. But I also grew up with the Flintstones and the Jetsons. So there is there is a common ground at the same time. So th- th- there's this. These two worlds that are meeting and they have a common ground and they have the opportunity to then go and expand into diff- different part of the world also allows for playfulness because then she gets to gets to discover parts of things that are quite fresh for her, like the idea of happy days uh, or the moment, for example, when in Ocean's 12, when uh, George Clooney say the guy doing pots is incredible. And that's exactly, you know, I can, I can definitely relate to that because yeah. I've seen it in both, both languages and the performances really shine. We just recently watched uh, Ocean's, Ocean's Eleven in, in Italian. And we, I mean, we, we really like the film. So we actually know the lines quite well because we even listen to it once well time when we work mm-hmm. and we actually rewound and re-listened to the dialogue and how the dialogue was crafted in a different, in a different language because of the needs for that culture. Yeah. So we're also looking at culture and how that affects pop culture. I mean, you were talking about how the pop culture content is uh, is seen from from different countries and different regions, and that is a huge, huge things to take in consideration. Uh, I remember in, in Spider Man Away from Home, where there was a line where uh, Spider Man sidekick said, "Oh, I'm, Europeans love Americans." And I have to say, the entire theater started laughing. Laughing. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I've been yeah. there. Exactly. Yeah, that's so, so funny. The, Ameri- it, yeah. It's funny that you should mention uh, Happy Days because I was also thinking about Happy Days in terms of not just cross-cultural, but cross-generational. That I uh, have these memories of watching reruns of Happy Days. So the show set in the 70s. I'm watching it with my parents who were that age. Um, or I guess a little older, in a little younger, in the 70s, and then remembering the 1950s, and then I'm watching this in the 1980s, and this is this, you know, mm-hmm. it means something completely different to me than it would mean to my parents watching it again that would mean to somebody who is, you know, involved in the show in the 70s. And I think that kind of, like, history never really belongs to us. Like, it always belongs to whoever is remembering it and so being able to experience the things that we share or the things that are different from our pop culture memories is always really really interesting but the one thing about the curiosity that kind of ties back into also what what we do create and how we hope that people experience what we do is the fact that every time we are watching a movie or something that it's entertainment based whether or even when we go to a museum and we we found out about a new artist there is this part of us that it's interested 
it's not necessarily just the looking and reading the, the plaques, but going home and then doing a little bit of research and finding out more about the specific work or a specific experience. And it's exactly the same thing. I'm like, who's the, the photographer for that, for that production? Or who's the designer? Oh, did you know that the designer worked on this show and did the sets for this and then went on to doing production, uh, being a producer on this other show? Um, today we were talking about James Gunn and and his history in in all the superheroes film that he's done and how it slowly led him to create his latest production, which is Peacemaker. Which I'm like, I can't stop thinking about the show because it's it's a mishmash of everything that shouldn't work together and it <laughs> works. And and I I keep on telling my friends is like, it shouldn't work. It shouldn't. It's completely all over the place, and it's so wonderfully held together. It's just I'm I'm still I'm like I can't say yeah. enough how much how how I I don't know how he glued it all together. But it's, it's so fantastic. interesting how the right moment, you know, the the right time, the right place is such a big part of the creative process, and you can't you can't predict that sometimes. So it seems to me that a lot of things are cultural, right? We do know what certain audiences are likely to react to, but it also seems to me that there's something human about this and that's quite universal. Like I'm thinking about Tintin or Asterix, you know, those are things that really appeal to Americans, right? I mean, American children's go, children go crazy over Tintin or Japanese anime, right? There's something about the aesthetics of some of this design that is really appealing uh, it feels like almost universally. I think so, yeah. So so it feels like there are some there's some common things in there. But then, you know, to your point, somebody comes up with something new that's not like that, you know, anything you've seen before. I mean, I guess this is the whole nature of creativity, but it's really fascinating to me that some of this is very much cross-cultural. Definitely. I think sometimes there's this visceral connection that goes beyond your brain what you think about it or your emotions what you feel about it I mean I can remember this this little boy he was like three or four years old listening to the Jungle Book soundtrack and it was that Louis Prima like big band super fun stuff and um he just he was in another world to the point where I'm he just peed his pants. I mean, he was three <laughs> years old, so that's forgivable, but just like really lost himself in the moment. And I think there's something when something connects to you inside, hopefully you don't always <laughs> lose your lunch or anything, Wet your pants, but um, <laughs> that it just, it grabs us on, on some kind of human level, as you said, and, and, and it, you don't need the the language or or the, the backstory to understand it. But it, I mean, she, she mentioned the Louis Prima, uh, songs in the Jungle Book, and I remember as a kid uh, listening to to that soundtrack over and over and over and over again, sitting on the balcony with my little tape deck thing, that, you know, Christmas present, and I'm like trying to push the volume as loud as I could because I really because I really love that type of music, and it wasn't really until later on in my life that I understood what type of music it was. I just thought, oh, I like jazz, but I couldn't find the jazz that I liked. Uh-huh. I'm like, this is not the jazz that I like. <laughs> I know it's jazz, but what is this? Yeah. Going back to the, you mentioned some sort of the, the appeal and the visceral elements that appeals to uniformly. And, and this is 
should be, I think it should be broken down in two different aspects of it. You have the visual appeal and the design of things, and then you have the story of it. The design aspect of it, those are just like storytelling. They, they have their own structures. And if you can find, if you follow certain rules, you will find it. But then there is the, the essence of it. You know, why are you doing it? And the intent, the driving force behind following the rules that will then drive you to create something that it's supposed to shine if you're doing it right. And if you if you're aware of what is around you and you're bringing in the right resources so that you can just masticate and then give birth to something new. If that makes sense. I mean, it's, it's really kind of sounds messy, sounds, <laughs> sounds messy. And it's also very abstract as a concept, but it really, I remember one of my art teachers said, learn how to steal. Mm-hmm. And it's not the stealing aspect of it is making it yours, be, being able to take those things that you love so much and then you transform them over time and over practice and over understanding because you're you're really are understanding why a line is, is changing shape and why a line is turning into a shape mm-hmm. and why a line is telling you a specific story because of of the gravity the weight whether it is hue or would you whether it is why is it there why is it not there because the absence of it as negative space or the absence of it is telling you something. So it's it's really interesting because, and, and it's really a clear cut line in the, in the studio where I am the visual person and Kirsty is the, the written word, but we're doing co-development. And when I'm, when I'm talking about we're doing co-development, that means that we literally are co-developing. So she might have an idea and I come in and I build on that idea orally. And then she says, okay, how about this way then? Then I start doing drawing and then she says, oh, okay, well, I see what you're saying. Then she'll rewrite it. So there is, there's such a, a ping pong between the two different mediums that are seeing things from completely different point of views, but then somehow we managed to find and hone in on what we what we actually want. The creation of what we do is itself a game, like this back and forth. And that's that's a fun way to look at it. I never realized that. And the project really isn't finished until we put the finishing touches. And it's not that we have an idea and we go and we create that thing that we originally give Genesis to, but we also let the project tell us where it wants to go because there are sometimes whether the, there might be financial restriction for the budget, or yeah. it could be a, um, a timely restriction, or it could be a technical restriction, but those become very much storytelling elements, kind of like the, the same way how Star Wars had a limited budget and they had to create certain things, had to make do and they brought that brought the charm that brought the sandbox and you need to have a sandbox or create your own sandbox so that you can create because if you're all over the place then you have something that does not have any flavor and i think because we're we're constantly are bring reeling ourselves in we're lucky enough to work well together and we also know each other's buttons to push <laughs> <laughs> Well, I, you, you're both so creative. And I think having that creative spirit, really, you look at things differently than most people would look at things. If you're not a creative person, 
you don't realize the process and how you're thinking about things to create it. And the fact that you both have that in you, like when you're talking about looking at the movies or looking at something that brings it, or going to the art museum and it's like, puts you down that rabbit hole to look up all this other information. I mean, most people probably aren't going down those holes as much because you guys are creative. You want to find out more about this because there's something about dif- different things that really inspire you and you want to you know, find out how you can make that work for you guys. Well, we definitely have have come across um, people who don't think like us. One of the experiences that we had at at Comic-Con once was uh, we were kind of talking to somebody about one of our projects and and what's behind everything. And uh, the man just said, oh, that requires thinking. And he walked away and I thought, oh, my gosh, if that's your like, what a great filter to find which people, you know, who's our target audience and who is not. And it was it was frightening, but also something that's happened more than once since then. So what do you think? So was the issue that they didn't want to fill in the blanks around the work because it the so. whole thing isn't there? I see. Yeah, I think so. so. Sort it, of like um, I just want it handed it. I want it handed yeah. to me on a platter. I want the whole thing yeah. already created. I just want to consume. Exactly. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. yeah. And I mean, at I mean, the end it's of the day, true. I it, enjoy it, that as well. Yeah. But. I mean, yeah, I get it in a way because what you're presenting with Curio and Co. does require engagement, right? It, Definitely. We mm-hmm. we think about it as being interactive, not in the yeah. sense that most people use it as like a, you know, a device that you press a lot of buttons with. Um, but you do, as you said, have to fill in the blanks. It's kind of a tip of the iceberg thing and the rest of it needs to exist in your your imagination and so um it did require thinking on on that man's part yeah i can understand some people at the end of the day don't want to do that every once in a while that's fine but i I would hope i would hope there's more often but exactly it's interactive and you without that engagement well i mean without that engagement we also do take in consideration the the fact that what we create has face value yeah it has to and so if you don't want to interact, you can buy a Frank and his friend comic book, one of the paperbacks, and you, you're just consuming the comics. And that's that has a value in itself. But we like to think about as creating design pieces because that book connects to the other books, which connects to the Monk Museum, which connects to the Spaceman Jacks through a chain link that you can discover. And that's where the discovery comes in, the curiosity comes in and the commitment, the interest in playing with these products or these design elements that we're creating for the market. Because obviously they are for the market because we don't want to just create something and then put it in the house. We want it to kind of go outside and play. Literally. So it's it's also interesting that the people that are are really quick at gravitating toward toward the, the things that we do are also creative people because they understand the process. They understand how we're thinking. And it was really nice. And one of the reasons why we're now developing a lot of things, uh, some TV series is, and uh, and some films is because we saw that the entertainment industry was thinking the way we were thinking. And people who gravitated, they, they immediately got it. When you could see the spark in their eye immediately, you said, oh, we do this. We create fictional worlds. Oh, okay. So, and who were they? They were producers, they were production designers, they were people who were working in the animation industry, script writers, directors, 
uh, agents. And because they understand the medium, they understand how things are coming together and the building blocks of world creation and immersion. And they are constantly not just creating, but playing with it on many different levels. They're working at a, at a level of, of the financial level and as well as the product and consumer level. And one of the things that we've, we really found incredible, fascinating, which has sadly changed in the years, was that Comic-Con allowed attendees or people in the market to see and then the entire gamut of the market, you would see the consumer, you could see the distributor, you could see the producer, you could see the financier and the big studios. But also all the different industries. You had video games mixing with mm. uh, traditional publishing and and then like the fan who wants the autograph. And, and it was an amazing place to be able to bring all of this together. We haven't been, I mean, there's been a pandemic. <laughs> we haven't been in a couple of years. Um, before that anyways but also it was it was becoming so popular that that it was kind of pushing out this industry side which is great I think it's still an amazing opportunity for fans to be able to connect up with this um but for for a period of time it was this like magical watering hole where all of the different um people came together it's interesting to me to to think because the reality is no matter how much you love Harry Potter or, you know, these worlds that you immerse yourself in that you're so in love with, right? And then you go to that place in your head and all that. It does come to an end. I mean, the series Harry Potter ended, but it's often the fans that drive it forward after that, right? They make the fan sites, they write the fan fiction, they, you know, so, so yeah, it is. I mean, there's there's a difference in scope between the big series, you know, that are done by Hollywood versus just a little drawing that a Chinese boy does based on, you know, some video game that he saw. But it, it in a way, it is all interactive. I mean, mm-hmm. bring that be, guy yeah, back here because no. you're you're having to think anyway. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well, it's it's kind of interesting because I was just thinking about that. I don't know if you guys got the news about that little boy who, back in he's younger, drew his own comic, and he put the comic in a library. Oh, and, and I love and, that story. Yeah. I, I mean, it's like people are just trying to inspire people in ways you don't even realize. I think the boy was maybe about six or seven when he when he drew this comic, and and he wanted people to to think of it as a regular book. So he actually hid it in the library okay. on the shelf. Where people could find it and it actually in time it became one of the most checked out books because <laughs> people were finding it and they must have saw the the love of him doing this and creating this world and you guys are doing the, the same kind of thing you're creating these worlds and but you guys have got a better way to do it than this throw it in the library <laughs> <laughs> he <laughs> Se- did what secret- he could yeah secretly but but now yeah it, it became such a phenomenon Interesting. You have to wonder how many more books are going to end up in libraries now that weren't supposed to be there. (laughs) (laughs) Uh Hiding in plain sight. So, I mean, obviously you have a particular talent for nostalgia, right? And your website talks about a flair for nostalgic design. Tell us what elements of nostalgia you think works, like what it means to people, what attracts people, what makes some companies good at it or designers good at, and then Others, not so much. Like, are there things that you think, yeah, that doesn't quite work? I think one of the most interesting things we've learned about nostalgia 
while creating the Curion Co is this huge difference mm. between the way things were and the way people remember the way things were. All that. That gap, that that huge gap sometimes um, can be so fascinating. Mm-hmm. And we've done projects dealing with um, materials because of course, nostalgia isn't just the story that you tell and how you remember it, but you can immediately connect to that with the right smell, the right feel, you know, um, getting all of your senses involved. And uh, this gap between the way people think something should feel or the way they think it should look is such an interesting uh, discovery into what they really, how they feel about the object itself. And we've seen this from both sides, actually. We have a good friend, uh, Pete Maraska, um, who founded Sunday Press, who was doing the I'll say the real version of of what we were doing, where he was finding newspaper comics from the 1800s and the early 1900s and reprinting them and doing all the restoration that was necessary to to get a good copy in people's hands. And uh, sometimes the comments were like, well, this is too clean. And in fact, many times they were pristine. This is what it came out. He was able to find, you know, a perfectly preserved a specimen of it and uh the reaction was just well this looks fake i know it's real but it looks fake and this difference that he had to go back in and kind of play with that a little bit to make it look like the way people were expecting mm-hmm. and i think that's the funny thing about nostalgia is you really have to i mean in the end these are all stories that we tell about something you know your childhood home is never as big as it really was when you remember it and so you have to you have to account for that it's a little bit like this you know, seam allowance that seamstresses have to do, or, you know, baker's dozen, throw an extra one in there just in case, because it's going to be different than the way people imagine. So that's, that's been an interesting thing that. That is fascinating. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) I I can understand that though, because the people that looked at it, that are, that are ages that would remember, they, they saw the reproduction, the the dirtiness of it and, and the, the way it was when they saw it, they never saw it when it came out in the paper and things like that yeah. because they're probably all dead. I mean, yeah. <laughs> uh, well, uh, so. Or so even they, if they did see it, you know, their, their eyes have grown. They're, you know, several feet higher up off the ground now than when they did when they were a kid. And so, right. yeah, they're, they're not accounting for all of those things. Sure. I mean, we, we just recently uh, were planning to do a series of, um, uh, of some of, of shorts of the Frank and his friend. I mean, this is something that we've been talking about for a while, and I started working on on doing some animation tests for the project, and we got some um, some Charlie Brown, uh, some Peanuts comics, just to, to look at the line weight and how that was done. And there's also a fantastic film that was done by by Blue Sky, where the the adaptation of the of the Peanuts comics which I think they nailed it 100%. How do you take a two-dimensional object into a three-dimensional world and still keep the nostalgia element? I think to this day, that is, is a fantastic, fantastic, fantastic uh, representation of the emotion and the spirit of the, uh, of the comics into a brand new medium. And there's also a small animation to the animation where one of the characters thinking that is... Is brilliant, and it also hurt me to see it because we've been wanting to make those those shorts for such a long time. And when I saw it, I was like, that's exactly what I wanted to do. 
with um, with Frank and his friend. It's incredible to take a look at how a line can connect emotionally because you're you're looking at the fact that it's inked, that it's inked on paper, the bleed of the ink onto the paper, and are you gonna keep that line there for twelve frames? even though the character is doing is doing the mouth movement or are you animating that line and what does that mean to the emotional connection so there there's so many different levels of transformation of the emotional connection through the medium he, in this case particularly we're going from a drawing to a print in consumer products and then from a consumer product into a different medium yeah it's a big channel that's a direct time uh, evolution but when you are doing something like creating something that was supposed to have that have was supposed to have been is that the right tense <laughs> yes <laughs> good job uh, <laughs> well, that grammar of nostalgia is itself really complicated sure but something that it that should have been printed let's say back in the 50s but you're creating that experience now what does it mean for the production processes how you're you're restricted by new technology to some extent yeah. that will not you're not going to be able to use the gels anymore to cut out the color now you have to think about it digitally but then you need to understand what were the process of printing off of a web press oh, back yeah. then so that then you can understand how you can simulate it into a digital environment in, in the right steps. And that all sounds really technical and complicated and like something that, that people really don't care about. Oh, you no. notice that... it. Oh, your yeah. Brain, I mean, you don't have to know anything about printing, but you look at it and there's something in your brain. There's something just in your gut that says that's not right. And exactly. so what, what Cesare is talking about is both super fascinating and fun for us, but also critical because if you get that wrong, they don't know why it's wrong, maybe, but they know it's wrong. Because I remember, I remember the story that we talked about when you did this uh, Spaceman Jack's comic yeah, and, and you had it designed in, in a way so it had all the imperfections and different yeah. things. And most printers, I, I come from a printing rack background and they see that stuff, they go, oh, they must have missed that. We better fix that for them. So you got people fixing the, the mistakes that you put in there Oops. so that it yeah. looks more authentic to that yeah. time frame. But you, 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 you can tell a story, but it was really fascinating when you, when you explained that to me. The project was a 1960s um, Silver Age comic. So it was supposed to feel like a kind of cheaply made, you know, something like uh, uh, that, that would have got into all the kids' hands. Um, kind sort of, of pulp pulp comic or yeah, something exactly. like that I okay think, um, uh-huh. we were looking at dell comics or something, mm-hmm. something yeah i was gonna say something like dell or something that's the uh, yeah. or charleston and or something that's what cesare was going for was that the images would be slightly off register oh, the colors uh-huh. would seem to bleed a little bit and your eye would register that as a mistake the yellow of the hair or the brown of the hair should go within the lines and it went over a little bit uh-huh, so now uh-huh. explain the process so, like in that case, there was there's different layers to the whole thing because so back then they used to cut out the colors and and then they would get get photographed and you would have those once the plates had struck the the mix of the colors then you would have the 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 color that you're hoping for. So there is the exacto knife cuts for each color, which was uh, limited to a 64 color palette, and then there's also the dot gain that changes the the color that you're actually printing. 
So I had to kind of reverse engineer and see what type of bleed each color would have with the dot for that specific color. (laughs) That's crazy. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, you're you're really researching an imperfection in yeah. order to perf- perfectly reproduce it, right? And then when the printer re-registered everything to correct all of that, it was like, <laughs> oh. like oh, what have you done? <laughs> yeah, That's because I, like there was that part, and I actually I wrote a script to to literally off-centered each one of the plates, right. and then I went. I mean, like this is me also being a completely geeky because I actually went through and figured out how many pages would be on a plate and I made sure that each one of the pages that would be on that specific plate would have the same misregistration which like if you don't understand what I'm saying yeah it's, 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 it's involved it's really off the charts <laughs> <laughs> no but the, yeah the whole thing I find very amusing somebody in the printing industry could look at the comic and say wow they got they got the things this wrong on this page wrong on this page and the other <laughs> the other pages look okay but yeah how does it happen and we these can days? Fix I mean, this. We have the technology now to fix this. I'll press you this don't have here to put up. Care of that for you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's definitely we we explore that very fine line between obsession and insanity. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, right. As much as we can, uh, at least there are also, like I said, there are limits to, to the time and the production schedule. So, you know, the, the more the time goes by, the more I realize finishing a project is also very important. Like you, you, you're never going to be able to get it 100% the way you want it. Even if you have all the money in the world, you, you're not going to be able to do that. And that would also be a pity because then you're not able to then move on to the next project. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the a sense of completion is also necessary to be able to to then do something better by going back to some of the things that are that are sadly not nostalgic where they do try to be nostalgic that's actually we see a lot of it where we say you know it's a pity i think that's that's a laziness from the creator's side or from from a producer side where you're you're looking at the product, um, whether it is a print or a film, and you say they just did not want to really take the time. Yeah. I, and I'm not saying taking the time. You can do a lot with 80% of your of the available time. Yeah, the the extra 20% is the hardest thing to do, but 80% is a big chunk. But if you're not even willing to go 80% of the way, but you're only willing to go 40%, then you're not in the right game. And at least put 80% of, you know, do 80% of the work because that, then you're on, on the ball game, you're playing the game. But if you're not willing to at least do some basic research, it's, it's a pity. And I think it sometimes nostalgia can be seen as like a, a, a way to access uh, the audience's emotions, you know, to get them mm-hmm. to care about it by, by reminding them of their mm-hmm. memories. And it's a kind of shortcut. And, and when it doesn't hit um, you know, when you when you have that feeling in your gut, oh, this isn't right, uh, then you feel cheated, I think, yeah. as an audience mm-hmm. that, you know, it feels a little manipulative. Manipulative is exactly the word that came to me. Yeah, exactly. You know, this is complicated, though. I'm I'm thinking about people's memories being flawed and how maybe if you did present things that were authentic to people, they might not have that same warm, happy feeling, but, you know, their memory is, of it is is different. I, I can imagine that we could easily be fooled by something like we get presented with something that's authentic. And it's like, no, that doesn't seem 
that doesn't seem right. That's not how I remember it. Maybe it's n- not as nice as we remember. I don't know. I think that, yeah, we'd have to be careful about that. But also the, the, the Mandela effect sometimes makes you think of things differently than they than they were. I mean, there's a lot of things that like Jiff peanut butter or something. Your Jiffy, people think it's Jiffy, but it wasn't Jiffy. It was Jiff peanut butter. Right, right. There's a lot of things mm-hmm. like they call it the Mandela effect where people remember things different than reality. Mm-hmm. And that is really, to me, it's bizarre that so many people can have that same right. false memory. Uh-huh. And yeah. it, to them it's 100% real. And I think then um, you have to be careful with this idea of documenting history and preserving it as it really was to show it as it really was. And with the Curioverse, we can, we don't have to worry about that at all because it's all invented. So we're really, (laughs) we're really staying with that idea of like, well, why would you remember it that way? What is the value in, in your version of the past? And, and why would you be interested in that story? And for us, that's the part that's important, not being able to reproduce it exactly as it was, but to, to be able to understand why we're remembering things that way we are but it, one of the fun i mean she, she mentioned a couple of things uh about the world and why they are the, the way they are for us the characters or or the companies that are part of this world are real and we identified with these these entities and these brands so much so that we would have corporate meetings about how Cadwell Hooper would go about manufacturing something and say, no, they would never manufacture that. I don't care that they have a candy department. Um, that candy department was shut down after <laughs> in 64. That doesn't matter. They would never produce that thing. Not to that quality. They're cheap production company that wouldn't do that or, or you know pod film and you know one of the members being kicked out or like why did are they producing these things and who were their competitors at the time because they were definitely competing with Hanna Barbera uh, you know their production styles are very similar so it's the idea of the choices and the brands that allows us it, like Again, this is part of the play and writing the history and playing with the history and going along and and trying to tap into this memory that you're going, wait a minute, did I, I think I, I think I saw something along those lines. And it kind of goes back to what you were talking about, this sense of appeal that you're, that you're connected to it at a guttural level, regardless of the culture that you're in. Because it's it's supposed to be a uniform, a universal kind of connection that you're gain, you're getting, whether it is the design or the story, you should latch onto it. One of the things that I find very very fascinating and also troublesome is when artists are are just going for oh it's supposed to be bad. Well, no, it's not supposed to be bad, or they're creating a piece of art or something that they call art. But they're going for the shock factor. And I, it's not the issue of the shock factor. It's the issue that they're not taking their craft seriously. And the craft, it can be something uh, atrocious to look at. Like a bacon painting is disturbing. Mm-hmm. It's absolutely a disturbing painting. But it's fascinating to look at. Mm-hmm. Visually, he understood how to hook you in. Mm-hmm. So you're, you're still looking at the painting while you're horrified by it. And, and this is exactly the hook that I'm talking about. And it's irrelevant whether it is a design from Lupin or a, an illustration 
or a, the first sentence of a book, can you bring me into the story, into the moment that you want to tell me about? Can you grab my attention? That's where the artistic element really starts shining. And the simplest elements, the, the elements that we, we think of as the simplest or or the parts that um, nobody, we think nobody really cares about. That's the stuff that's the hardest to do. Uh, the simplest actually, stuff yeah. is the hardest to pull off. Oh, we, I have clients that all of a sudden, oh, just do something simple. And then you're going, you're asking me to do. You the, just double the price. Fast and simple. I'm like, no, <laughs> they, they don't. And probably you want like a third of the price too. It's like it, it's. It's incongruent. You can't have it. Uh, it. It just doesn't work. We're not done right anyway. We're not done your quality that you guys, because you guys have a really great quality of your of what you guys do. Nothing is really done like a throwaway type thing. And it's all, I mean, the depth of your website. I mean, I was looking back through it again. I hadn't looked, been into it in a while, but I was looking at all the stuff about the farm equipment that they were making at one point. <laughs> I mean, it was like all these manuals and things of all the different farming equipment it's like well how does that fit into the world of the frank and friends or the gadabout or different things but you you you, you explain why they're connected but you have to really have to really have to dig deep and you, you you get all the answers if you so you may not get everybody understanding that but but the people that find it and dig through it really realize man this has been a lot of effort to make this thing work to be the way it is. And you have no idea how much is sitting on my hard drive that I haven't had the chance to <laughs> upload yet. And I, I, I'm walking on walls. I wish I had minions working for me. So I can say, you do this, 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 you do this. But I think there's something really special from the audience when, when you go looking for something like that, something, some weird connection that shouldn't normally be there and you find it. I mean, I, I can, I'm thinking of the Pirates of the Caribbean ride uh, at Disneyland and there's one point where, you know, the, all of the action is in front of you. You come around, the pirates are there in front of you, the boat's pointed in front of you, all of the seats are pointed that direction. But if for some reason, and I don't know why anyone would do this, you crane your neck to learn to look behind you, that little part of the wall is still designed. So that just think, there's no reason you should look behind you, but if you do, the world continues and it still exists there and it's still a solid world. And I think it's kind of the same thing that there's a lot of the stuff in Curion Co that we've created that we know most people aren't gonna go looking for and they're not gonna find, but like, it makes me laugh to myself. Like I can't, I, I, it makes me giggle to think if someone goes looking for that, they're going to find that little piece of the wall is also designed. <laughs> uh -huh. And that's going to like, it's going to feel like it's, it was done just for them. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's, that's right. There's really is a very personal connection that we have when we create worlds in our mind, like from books. And then when they're brought to the screen, if it's not how you pictured it, then it's, yeah, it started, but if it is the way you pictured it, it's like, oh, yes. <laughs> How did they get in my mind? Uh, exactly, <laughs> right, yeah. But it, it, it's also, uh, like, one of the things that we also try to think about when while we do our projects is also allowing the consumer and, and the, the audience to play with it in the terms of the creation process. So giving them the opportunity to actually create part of it in their own mind. So that it's not necessarily 
it's not what Kirsty was saying of looking back and not seeing that it's designed, but saying, okay, you're there and you're enriching the experience of what you're engaging with, mm-hmm. with a, a piece of memory. So that you might start asking the question of, wait a minute, how, what, why was this printed in 2053? How come this one has two copyright pages? <laughs> you start going, what, what, what? I'm like, no, and you start imagining, well, maybe it's because of this and because of that. We're trying to kind of spark the curiosity mm-hmm. and spark the playfulness that we have lost as time has gone by because you grow up and you have responsibilities and then you forget what it is to play. And as an adult, we're still kids, you know, like mm-hmm. the moment when we sit down during the holidays, whether it is during the holiday season or it is uh the, the time where you are, are officially off, there's a sense, sense of playfulness. If you go to the beach and you roll in the sand for five minutes and you let yourself go, it's the inner child that really comes out and, and it just fills you with joy. And all of a sudden the troubles just go away. And we live in a world which is really demanding. And if we can bring a little bit of joy for five minutes, then we've done our job. I mean, it's entertainment. <laughs> That is what we're aiming at is to entertain people five minutes so that you at least you can put a smile on your face and kind of take a breath, if that makes sense. Oh, yeah. Oh, I think that's definitely the joy that this kind of work brings to people, right? And yeah, it does seem like now is a time. I'm sure this is, we say this all through the ages, but yeah, now feels like a time when we could especially use some fun and playfulness yeah. <laughs> and, and, and joy. Yeah. Well, I can't believe the time has flown by the, the way it has. I'm I'm sort of astonished at, uh, to look at the clock. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. It was really lovely. No, well, thanks. This has been a lot of fun for us as well. And thanks for for showing interest in what we're we're doing. It's always a pleasure to find somebody who who appreciates the, our craziness. It's very complicated what you're doing. Yeah, it, yeah, it's really very, very impressive. Makes me think about a lot of things. Um, and before I let you go, is there anything you'd like to share with the audience? Well, I, I guess I would just say the website is completely in character, so people won't find out much about us on the website, but that's fine because there are many more interesting characters um, that they can learn about. Um, but the same way that we've been talking about the products, you can poke around and find a little bit more. I would also encourage people to poke around the website and see if they can find a little bit more because there's a variety of things that are hidden there that might be fun to yeah. discover. And let us know if uh, if you find something that you particularly like. We always like to hear from uh, from our viewers what they think or how they, they perceive things because then... It also charge us in in the creative process to to kind of spark our our interest as well in the specific specific area of um, of the world because the world is quite large and we can't devote our time to just everything so we have the work schedule of everything that we're aiming at um, we're always looking to add to our list, list so when someone so. says have you seen the show have you read this book have, have, are you familiar with 
with this or that aspect of pop culture, we, we can't wait to add it to the list. And I mean, there's so much to discover, but that's the great thing. And so let us know what we should discover. Thank you so much for coming on the show. It's really been delightful to talk to you. And thank you for the work that you're doing for all the joy you're bringing to the world. Well, thank oh, you. Thanks. I hope everybody can go to the website and, and check out all the fun things because it really is a, a real joy to, to see what you guys have produced and made. And it's been a thank lot you. of fun for me over the years. Oh, thanks a lot. Thanks, Bill. Thanks, everybody, for listening. We really appreciate it. Don't forget to check out the show notes for additional information about this episode. And give us a like or a thumbs up on Podomatic or wherever you listen to your podcasts. We'd also love to have your support on Patreon. And get in touch. We'd love to hear from you through the internet or Twitter or whatever means works for you. And finally, thanks to Caffeine Creek for the theme music.